Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 as we begin sort of an introduction to this letter itself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In the summer of 1903, John McKay, who was a Scottish-born Presbyterian, he'd later become the president of Princeton Theological Seminary, he went out into the highland hills of his homeland and found himself reading the letter to the Ephesians. He was only 14 years old at the time, but nothing in his life would be the same after that. This is what he wrote in a book called God's Order, the Ephesian Letter in this present time, as he began to explore the meaning of the biblical truth found in Ephesians. He asked the reader for forgiveness because, quote, at this point it is difficult to avoid becoming lyrical. That kind of objectivity which some would advocate in the study of religion is, for this writer, utterly impossible so far as the epistle to the Ephesians is concerned. For to this book, I owe my life. I was a lad of only 14 years of age when in the pages of the Ephesian letter, I saw a new world. After a period of anguished yearning during which I prayed to God each night the simple words, Lord, help me, something happened. What happened to me? Everything was new. Someone had come to my soul. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. The only explanation I could give to myself and to others was in the words of the Ephesian letter, whose cadences began to sound within me and whose truth my own new thoughts and feelings seemed to validate. My life began to be set to the music of that passage which begins... And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Now, of course, I can't promise to you that our study of Ephesians is going to offer you the identical experience, but I can tell you that the content of the letter holds that prospect. Ephesians is a letter that is concise in its dimensions and confounding in its magnitude. It might cover all of five or six pages in your Bible, or maybe less if your Bible doesn't have a lot of notes. But in the six short chapters of Ephesians, it covers an immeasurable span of Christian understanding. Walter Liefeld said it beautifully in his commentary, and I'm just going to give you another long quote. He compares the letter of Ephesians to a great painting who, quote, The canvas stretches horizontally from before the creation of the world in chapter 1, verse 4, to when the times have reached their fulfillment in chapter 1, verse 10. It reaches vertically from the lower earthly regions in chapter 4, verse 9, to the heavenly realms in chapter 1, verse 3, and even higher than the heavens in chapter 4, verse 10. 
Yet the letter contains such precise and colorful detail about God's saving work in our lives and in the church that it requires minute study for maximum appreciation. Our goal this morning is going to be just to dig into the basic introduction to the letter to the Ephesians. And you might say, well, I thought that's what we've been doing for the last month. And true enough, it is. I do believe that the background we've looked at in the book of Acts is going to help us with Ephesians. Every good introduction to a book is going to cover who wrote it, who it was written to. (coughs) Sorry. (coughs) I didn't know there was anything flying around in here. But I think I swallowed it. Wow. If you're going to introduce a book, you need to say who wrote it, who it was written to, and why it was written. And to cover that, you're going to need to go on a bit of an exploration with me this morning to to solve a bit of a mystery that has stretched all the way from the first century. So if you want to, you know, put on your appropriate sleuth hat and pull out a magnifying glass if you've got one, because I do think this calls for some clarity before we start. And we're only going to have that clarity if we really dig into the text of the New Testament and do some thinking a little bit about why we have this letter here. Would you believe me if I told you for hundreds of years, many Bible scholars have debated whether this book was written by the Apostle Paul, whether it was written to the church at Ephesus, and even more debate rages about why it was written to begin with. So let's answer those things. Did Paul write this? Absolutely yes, but that answer is not as obvious to many people as it seems. We have a record of a lot of things written in the first few centuries of Christianity claiming to be written by the Apostle Paul, but that clearly weren't. Those documents are not a part of Scripture. They aren't inspired. And in fact, since this clearly claims to be written by Paul, the first word in verse 1, if it wasn't, then it is intentionally misleading and it shouldn't be part of Scripture. Those first two verses we just read are thoroughly something that you would expect Paul to write. It is a very common opening to what we're going to find is an uncommon letter. I say that because what follows verses 1 and 2 is not really typical of the Apostle Paul. When Paul wrote to a church, it was most often to address some specific problem. So for example, in Corinth, There were some members of the church who were engaging in sexual sin and others were fine and even bragging about that. Even more were disrupting worship service with with nonsense. And so Paul wrote to correct those practical problems. In Thessalonica, the church there was being misled about the nature and timing of the return of Jesus. Some of them thought that it had already happened. Um... So Paul wrote to correct that specific 
theological problem. The churches in Galatia were being attacked by false teachers who were perverting the gospel and presenting a different gospel. And so Paul wrote Galatians to give clarity to the true gospel. But when you read Ephesians, it's not like that. Whatever caused Paul to write this letter is not immediately obvious. Certainly the reason doesn't stand out as clearly as it does in Paul's other letters. There are also some other things that seem unlike Paul, like the sentence structure. I would never argue that Paul was a simple person when he wrote. He didn't write in simple, short, easy sentences. But there are some long sections of Ephesians that are unusual even for him. For example, start at the beginning of verse 3 and just sort of scan down through the text and look for when that sentence ends. And when you find a period in verse 6, I get to tell you that that's not actually there in what Paul wrote in the original language. And when you find the next period in verse 12, I get to tell you that wasn't actually there in what Paul wrote in the original language. In fact, beginning at verse 3, all the way through the end of verse 14 is one single massive sentence. That's not normal, even for the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't think it's normal for anybody except maybe John Gill's commentaries, which if you've read them, you know. Uh, But it's not absolutely abnormal either. Paul's not afraid to be complex, and, and certainly not being exactly like his other letters and having some surprising sentence structure is not enough reason to question the very first word of this letter. Let's remember, the Apostle Paul had spent three years in Ephesus. They know him well. They're not going to be fooled by a forgery. It's Paul writing. So that brings us to our second question. Did the Ephesians receive this? Because you see where it says in verse 1, to the saints which are at Ephesus? Well, there are some very old manuscripts that don't have the words at Ephesus in the manuscript. So there's a bunch of folks over the centuries who have argued this letter wasn't intended for the Ephesians at all. And it's fair to say that past verse 1, right, that one reference to the Ephesians, there is not anything specifically said about the location after that. The problem with that view is that most manuscripts do read at Ephesus. And furthermore, without those words, the sentence doesn't make much sense. It would be something like, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Right? Something needs to be in there. And so there's not much suggested as to what else would belong there if at Ephesus is not correct. I'm confident that Paul wrote the letter and it was written to the church at Ephesus. However, we've, we've talked before about the way that letters were written to a church and would be intended to be copied and circulated among other churches. For example, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he says in Colossians 4.16, when this letter is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and likewise, you read the letter to the Laodiceans. 
The letter to the Laodiceans, by the way, is lost to us. Otherwise, we'd have a Laodicean somewhere in our Bible between you know, Ephesians and Colossians. Letters were intended to be circulated among churches, and that's why we have so many ancient copies of them. What seems really likely is that this letter was written by Paul at the same time that he wrote the letter to the Colossians, and that this letter was the first one to be delivered. As the messenger took passage on ship, he would come to the port of Ephesus, bringing this letter with him. And so it is for Ephesus. But it would continue to be copied and distributed to other churches throughout Asia Minor. And let me just add, maybe that was Paul's intention to begin with. Remember how we said this letter is unusual and that it does not address any specific problem within the church? Well, maybe, just maybe, that's because Paul intends, intends it for a wider audience than just one church. It is a letter for the Ephesians and also for the Colossians and this morning for the Washingtonians, or we would be Washingtonites. Or, no, I think Washingtonians would be correct. That being said, there are good indications that Ephesus was the intended target for this letter. Even if we ignore the most obvious one that says, at Ephesus in verse 1, here's what we need to put on our our detective hat for a minute. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. It says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things. By the way, that man's name is probably pronounced something more like uh, Tychicus, but I've always called him Tychicus, and I'm probably not going to change that this morning. So we can see from that verse, Ephesians 6.21, that Tychicus is almost certainly carrying this letter to the church at Ephesus. Paul says in the next verse, I have sent him to you for this purpose. The reason that's helpful for us to know is that Tychicus is mentioned four other times in the New Testament. He's mentioned in Titus chapter 3 verse 12 as a helper to Paul. He's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 verse 12 when Paul says he has sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And there's two others that I think are very important. Look, if you would, at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Starting at verse 7. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. It's almost the exact wording as we found in Ephesians. Tychicus is carrying this letter written from Paul to Ephesus, and he's carrying another one written from Paul to Colossae, and he is entrusted to, when he gets to those churches, inform those churches on how the Apostle Paul is faring. What is his condition that has not been written down in the words of the letter? And we'll see in a moment why Paul might have hesitated to write down specifics in the words of the letter. 
So Tychicus is this trusted aide for Paul, and he's going to inform the churches about Paul's condition, but that's only helpful and valuable if Tychicus is someone who they know and trust. And he is, because he's from there. You can turn to Acts 20, verse 4, if you want to, but I'll read it to you. Acts 20, verse 4, it's describing Paul on his journeys. And it says, There accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. You don't want to tuck that name Trophimus away in the back of your head for a minute, and we'll, we'll pull it out just for a second. But for now, it says Tychicus and Trophimus in that verse are from Asia. Ephesus is the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. So Tychicus is being sent back home with this letter from the Apostle Paul, where he is known and he is trusted, and he's carrying these letters to the Ephesians and a letter to the Colossians, and it lends authority to those letters because the churches know him, right? There's an authority and an authenticity that come along with the fact that, well, this is a familiar face who's carrying these letters from the Apostle that we love. If Paul didn't write this letter, or if Ephesus was not the destination for this letter, none of that stuff would really make any sense. Right? This is important. It is from Paul, and it's to the church at Ephesus. So what's the point then? If, if who is writing is Paul, and who it's written to is the church at Ephesus, then why is it written? Well, I've already said that it doesn't seem to address any major specific problems. But the background that we learned in the book of Acts is going to be helpful for us here. Remember, the last thing that we saw between Paul and the Ephesians in Acts as he was passing through on his way to Jerusalem. He called for the, the pastors of the church at Ephesus to meet him. And this is what he said to them. In Acts 20, verses 22 through 25, he said, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Now, you remember that later on, after this full sermon of the Apostle Paul, the elders followed him onto the ship, crying, clinging onto his clothes, and this idea of what Paul said, I'm, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and I, I don't know what's going to happen to me there, but it, it probably ain't going to be good, the Holy Spirit has said, to expect bonds and afflictions. It only makes sense that the church at Ephesus not only wanted to hear from the Apostle Paul again, they needed to hear from the Apostle Paul again. And Paul knew 
he wasn't going to see their face anymore. They weren't going to meet face to face. And so he writes this letter. As Paul continued on to Jerusalem, he was arrested in the temple courtyard. Part of the accusation that they used to arrest the Apostle Paul was that an Ephesian Gentile named Trophimus, remember that's the name you got tucked in the back of your head, that he took Trophimus into the inner courtyard of the temple, which clearly he did not do. Paul is accosted in the temple courtyard. He's rescued by Roman soldiers who come and drag him into the fortress of Antonia with the intention of beating a confession out of him. Things are not great. He's eventually moved to Caesarea Philippi on the coast and he's imprisoned there for a few years and ultimately he is shipped to Rome as a prisoner. The Ephesians need to know what is happening to him. They want to know what's happening to him. So listen as Paul describes himself in this letter. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 20, he says, for the gospel, I am an ambassador in bonds, or in chains, literally, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul is imprisoned as he writes this letter to the Ephesians, yet he does not see himself as restrained by the Roman government. He sees himself as exactly where the Lord Jesus wants him to be. I am imprisoned. I am, I am bound with this chain because the Lord Jesus has placed me there. And by the way, that helps us figure out the timing of this letter as well. Clearly, some time has passed between that goodbye, that tearful goodbye in Acts chapter 20 and the writing of this letter of Ephesians. Enough time that Paul describes in in chapter 1, verse 15, he says something that seems odd. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he tells them, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. That sounds like he's writing to people he doesn't know. But he does know them. It's a strange thing for Paul to say if he's just left to say something like, well, I've been hearing about you. So we need to set a timing for this letter as on the early side, soon enough that Paul is familiar to them and explaining what's happened. And on the the late side, enough time has passed that the church is, is a little different than the church that Paul left, right? There are some familiar faces that Paul knows, but there's some new faces that he's only heard about. It also needs to be set in a time where Paul was a prisoner, specifically a prisoner in bonds or in chains, the way he describes it. So let's figure that out for a second. Paul experienced several imprisonments in his life, extended imprisonments. I'm not considering things like where he was in the jail in Philippi overnight. I don't think he penned any six-chapter letters uh, overnight. 
But we need to find a time where Paul was a prisoner for an extended time and in chains, but also able to write a letter like this and free to have aides like Tychicus come and go as a messenger. So when he was arrested in Jerusalem, he was sent later to the coastal city of Caesarea Philippi. In that imprisonment, Paul was free to roam about the government, the governor's palace, but he was not free to leave. He was a prisoner, but he was not in chains. And so he was put on trial before governors Felix and, and Festus, but it seems unlikely that that imprisonment is where Paul wrote this because he wasn't in chains. And also it seems too soon for him to have said something about, well, I've, I've heard about your faith and love. Later, Paul was shipped to Rome. He was shipwrecked along the way. And when he arrives there, he's awaiting a hearing by Caesar himself, which is either going to free him or condemn him. He spends time in a rented house. He's chained to a Roman soldier at all times. He's free to accept visitors and have people come and go. We know that Paul is ultimately freed, but then later he's arrested again. This time, that that later arrest is almost certainly he is held in this place called the Mamertine Prison, which, while it is worse than before, it's not what you would call in chains because the Mamertine Prison was essentially a cellar where there was a hole in the ground that prisoners were dropped down through. They weren't chained. And it's there that he writes to his friend Timothy and essentially says, come quick if you want to see me alive because I fully expect to be executed. Surely the only imprisonment we know that fits this situation is that first imprisonment at Rome. The last verses of Acts describe this imprisonment. Acts 28 verses 30 and 31 says, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so Paul was a prisoner. He was not free to leave, but people were free to come and go. He was chained. The Roman soldiers would be in shifts coming and being chained to him. He can write this letter and the letter to the Colossians. He can send them by the hand of his friend Tychicus. Meaning if we drew this out on Paul's, uh, a timeline of Paul's life, about six or seven years have passed from that tearful goodbye in Acts 20 until the time that the church at Ephesus receives this letter. It's carried by a person they know. It's written by the apostle that they know. And it contains a message of encouragement that they need. No surprise then that this letter is not addressing some specific problem in the church at Ephesus. It's not like many of the other letters that Paul's written. They had problems for sure. But they need to hear from Paul and Paul wants them to know what's going on. And so how much of that personal detail is he going to put into a letter? Like actually write down on paper, 
the details of his imprisonment, his plan for his defense. Y'all, I'm pretty sure letters from prison still get read today. So he's not going to have those things written down. But he says, here's this letter for you, and I've sent Tychicus to you so that he can describe all the details of the things that are going on. That goes a long way to explain why Ephesians and Colossians both say exactly the same thing in those verses where Paul says that you may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Right? Tychicus is going to fill you in on everything else. Things aren't quite as bad as you think they are. And while there's no major issues being addressed, at least not major issues in the sense of what had happened at Corinth or Thessalonica, there are a couple of things that Paul seems to take aim at directly. In the years since he left, the church at Ephesus had continued to grow, drawing in both believing Jews and new Gentile converts. But the believers in Ephesus were disappointed by their lack of communication with Paul. They missed his guidance. They missed his presence. (coughs) Meanwhile, in the Roman Empire, some other things were slowly changing. While being a Jew under Roman law, being a Jew was allowable. There was sort of this developing understanding at this point in time on the part of the Roman government that Christians were not simply Jews, that there was a a difference. Remember, one way that Paul defended himself in, in Acts was to say, I still consider myself a Jew. I believe in all the promises that God gave the fathers in the Old Testament, right? The, the idea was that being a Christian was the purest form of Judaism. And while being a Christian in the early years was defended by the government, by the time of this letter, they had started to differentiate between Jewish believers in Christ and Gentile believers in Christ. Jewish believers in Jesus could point to the fact that, well, my mom's a Jew and my dad's a Jew. My grandmas and grandpas are Jews. I was raised a Jew. I still consider myself Jewish. Gentile believers in Jesus, on the other hand, did not have that defense. For example, if you had a man who was a Gentile in Ephesus and he regularly came and worshipped the goddess Artemis at that huge temple and even made sacrifices to Augustus Caesar that when emperor worship was required. What happens when that man hears the gospel and now suddenly he identifies himself as a believer in the Jewish Messiah but he has no Jewish background or heritage whatsoever? Well, the government, when they came around requiring emperor worship, would look more harshly on such a man than they would a Jewish-born believer. And the result is that within the assembly of believers at Ephesus, traditional Jewish Christians and new believing Gentile Christians were distanced from each other. Gentile believers were were tempted to return to some aspects of pagan worship because they were being pressured in a way that, that Jewish believers were not being. 
And so here's how Paul addresses it. We'll see next time in that long section from verse 3 to verse 14 in chapter 1. He outlines the eternal purposes of God in saving all kinds of believers through the election of the Father, by the redemption of the Son, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He says there is one kind of Christian, and that's a person who believes in Jesus according to God's plan and for the purpose of God's glory. He'll go on to explain that means God has shown the greatness of his grace towards all believers, right? We were all dead in trespasses and sins. And God has made us alive in Christ completely through a work of his grace. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says to Jewish believers that those Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but they are fellow citizens with all saints, and they are part of the household of God. So that now, uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, the barriers have been broken down. In chapter 3, verse 6, the Gentiles are part of the same body called the church. And that is where our emphasis should be in worship. By the end of chapter 3, he says it is the church that is the organization designed by God to give glory to God by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, forever. And the unity of that assembly is an essential message of this letter. In Ephesians 4, he stresses that unity by using the words one and all several times. Look over at chapter 4. Chapter 4, let's just start at verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given a grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. There is a radical change that has taken place in every believer. They've been brought to life by the Spirit. They have been made to walk in the Spirit. And this change is just as dramatic for Jewish believers as it is Gentile believers. And that radical change, Paul goes on to say, it's going to affect practical matters in every part of your life. By the time he gets to chapter 5, he says, it's going to change the way that you talk. It's going to change the way that wives treat husbands. It's going to change the way that husbands treat wives. This change through faith in Jesus is going to change in chapter 6, how parents deal with children, how children act toward their parents. This, This change that comes through faith in Jesus demands that in every moment of your life, You remember that you are a soldier of the cross engaged in spiritual warfare and that you need all the armor that God provides in order to stand. And so this morning's message might have ended up being more of like an introduction to an introduction to Ephesians. We still haven't dealt with any of the text in detail, but listen, the the text is all there for you, right? Hopefully, what this morning might have done is like wet your appetite for more. If I can just continue with that analogy for a second. You understand God's word is spiritual food. It's spiritual food that nourishes us. I promise. 
I will have no complaint next week if you come and you have ruined your appetite by having read Ephesians seven or eight times a day. I don't expect you to read it seven or eight times a day, but it should take you 20 to 30 minutes at most to read this letter. And the more you read it, the more you'll start to absorb it. So get into it. The the glory of God, the good news of Jesus, the power of the Spirit, the importance of the importance of the church and the unity of the church. This is an encouraging letter, and it's one that I think is going to fill a need that we have in our assembly.